welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. Hello there, this is Brian Collins from Become a Writer Today. And in this podcast episode, I'm going to give you an extract from one of my books, The Power of Creativity. In this book, I actually talk about how you can find new ideas for your big creative projects like your book or your novel. And if you're interested in getting a free copy of the book, you can just go to thepowerofcreativitybook.com. Now, about 15 years ago, I spent nearly two months traveling around South America. And I went to a remote region in South America called the Pantanal. And I want to talk about my experiences and how they helped me change my perspective and the lessons I applied for creative projects later on based on what happened. Where are you going next? I was sick of this question. I was nearly two months into a summer backpacking trip around Brazil and I'd begun to loathe the backpackers around me. They kept asking questions, not because they cared about the answer, but so they could prove their experiences were more valid and I was tired of it. I guess I was jealous. I was searching for an answer that didn't sound cliche, so when a crusty backpacker suggested the Pantanal, I jumped at the chance of an experience far from the beaten track. The world's largest swampland, the Pantanal is located mostly in Brazil, just below the Amazon jungle. And to get there, I travelled on a bus for 12 hours in a cramped seat by a leaky toilet and me with a wide grin that said, this is roughing it. Arriving at the camp, I was struck by the novel soundtrack of the Pantanal. A cacophony of chattering monkeys and birds chirping in the trees and the rustle of bats flying overhead. Our guide, Nicola, was a stocky man with bloodshot eyes and a series of scars around one of his forearms. He flashed his torch onto the ground and said, Don't go to the toilet cubicle without a torch. I couldn't see much more than a metre in front of me, but when I looked down, I was shocked by the mass of ants swirling over my feet. At breakfast the next morning, we swatted flies from our watermelons and pineapples and then started out what turned to be a seven-hour trek through the forest and savannah land. Nicola dismissed our attempts at small talk with a grunt or a nod, but his perception of the landscape was unlike ours. I'd see a mark in the sand or walk past a bush rustling and think nothing of it until Nicola explained the mark in the sand was a snake trail and that there was a monkey inside the bush. And later, when a group of lemurs charged across our path, their yellow and black tails bouncing in the air like a sea of frustrated hairballs, I didn't know what to think. One afternoon, we went horseback riding, and I lagged behind the rest of the group. And every time I tried to direct the horse in one direction, it trotted in another direction. So I was grateful when Nicola swapped his horse with mine. Then, five minutes later, the same protesting horse that I'd just been on reared up into the air and flung our guide to the ground. Nicola jumped up, grabbed the horse by the reins, smacked it in the face and stared into its eyes. The animal went quiet and Nicola climbed back into the saddle. Then our horses rode us back to camp, breaking into a gallop as we drew near. That night, a skinny man with a pockmarked face pulled an anaconda from inside of a tree nearby and he held it in the air and perhaps because I was standing closest, he thrust the wriggling snake into my hands and he grinned. Put it back in the tree, he said. Good luck. I could feel the raw power of the animal pulsing through my arms. And after my friends had taken a photo, I dropped the snake on the ground and walked off very quickly. Over a local sour drink, I asked our guide Nicola about the scar on his forearm. He waved his aforementioned hand. Puma, he said in broken English. Later, Nicola confessed he dreamt of travelling on the Orient Express, 
but he hadn't left the camp in over six months and he'd never left the country. This was his home and his work. And his dreams for the future were being shaped by his day-to-day experiences in the Pantanal, just as mine were shaped by my mundane experiences at home in a bland office job in Ireland. Early the next morning, we went fishing for piranhas. And when we went fishing for piranhas, a friend pointed out what looked like an alligator on the edge of the lake. Nicola said, they're more afraid of us than you are of them. And he proceeded to skin a piranha he'd caught and toss the remains into a snapping alligator's mouth. Much later, I found out that only a certain type of piranhas eat humans, so it was all perfectly safe. And that night, we had barbecued fish and boiled rice. And after dinner, Nicola asked us to shine our torches onto a lake at the back of the camp. Dozens of red eyes were gliding soundlessly through the water and away from the light. Looking at those alligators, my belly full of piranhas, it was hard not to feel pleased about this different view of the world. And while I took photos, Nicola stood to one side and looked at his watch. The absurdity of eating piranhas, they were bland and bony in case you were wondering, and watching alligators was an alien experience unlike anything I'd done at home in Ireland. But it was also something Nicola had done and seen many times. On the last day of our trip to the Pantanal, Nicola woke us before dawn. The sun stepped lazily onto the horizon and light trickled down across the fields. It was a beautiful Brazilian morning, but I was tired of the chirping birds and monkeys, the bats flying overhead at night, of being bitten by ants, slapping mosquitoes from my arms, and my tongue turning numb from the taste of mosquito repellent. I had enough of the Pantanal, the early mornings, the uncomfortable heat, and using a torch to go to the toilet. And the camp felt old, fixed, and confining. We watched the sun light up the dirt track leading to the camp. A jeep was bringing a new group of backpackers towards us. My off-the-beaten experience felt unique only compared to where I'd been before and where I was going next. And I thought of Rio de Janeiro and about football, sex and religion. And change was coming and I relished it. I didn't think much about the Pantanal or my experiences with Nicola and the snake and the anaconda until much later when I was back in Ireland. And there, during grey days in the office park where I worked, I wondered, was Nicola still fantasising about the Orient Express? Was he still leading tourists around savannah lands and forests? And when I fought with the photocopier, I imagined what would happen if we were attacked by pumas at 3.37pm on a random Tuesday. And a colleague, seeing me lost in thought, asked what I was thinking about. And when I told her, she said, that's absurd. So how can you use absurd experiences for your creative projects, like your book? Well, I'd like you to think of your creative project as a mountain. And at the top of this mountain, you can mine bizarre and outlandish and absurd ideas and experiences like fishing for piranhas. And at the bottom of the mountain, you can extract practical, relevant and logical ideas like some research you've maybe done with your readers or on the marketplace. You're not looking to set up camp at the top of this mountain in the Pantanal because the conditions up there are too inhospitable for your ideas to thrive. And there's also little point in settling at the bottom of this mountain because base camp is a crowded place and we've all been there before. Instead, there's a hidden place between the points of absurdity and relevancy that's rich in novel ideas and rich in useful ideas. Think of it as a secret forge where you can combine the novelty of the absurd with the applicality of the practical. Here your inner genius can get to work and smelt the golden ideas that you crave for your books and your big creative projects. Now the question is, how can you get to this secret forge while expending a minimal amount of your limited creative resources? Well, you could create a thought experiment. 
Now, what's a thought experiment? Well, if a teacher, friend or family member has ever said to you, Brian, you live inside your head, you recognize this as a perplexing and sometimes embarrassing experience. And I know this because this used to happen to me regularly. But the next time someone criticizes you for this behavior, tell them you're engaging in a thought experiment. You're thinking your idea is true, just like Albert Einstein. They'll probably look at you like you're crazy, but here's the thing. Your imagination will help you get to the top of the mountain to mine those absurd ideas that I talked about. Albert Einstein lived in his head for hours at a time where he conducted these thought experiments. And during these exercises, he took an idea or a scenario for his scientific projects and spun them around in his mind. When he was a young child, a school child in Switzerland, he attempted to picture riding alongside a light beam. And he said, I made my first rather childish experiments in thinking that had a direct bearing on the special theory. If a person could run after a light wave with the same speed as light, you could have a wave arrangement which could be completely independent of time. But of course, such a thing is impossible. Now, it's easy to imagine Einstein's teacher telling him to stop daydreaming about light experiments and pay attention to the lesson in front of him. But Einstein later credited this thought experiment as the starting point for his famous theory of relativity. And during his late 20s and early 30s, he used mathematical equations and the rigor of science to take his absurd idea and form it into a practical and applicable theory. Some of Einstein's other thought experiments involved lightning strikes, falling painters, moving trains, and even imagining the velocity of electrons. And while Einstein gave time to daydreams and his imagination, he eventually uprooted his ideas from the recesses of his mind, wrote them down, worked on them, and published his findings. Just like a writer should uproot ideas from the recesses of his mind or her mind, write them down, work on them, and publish them. In other words, Einstein climbed down from his absurd daydreams about running after light or imagining the speed of an electron and turned his thoughts into practical scientific concepts. So the next time you're struggling with a creative project, try to come up with as many absurd ideas as possible. Push past your point of discomfort and your cognitive biases and have fun with your ideas, fantasies and daydreams. So let's say you wanted to come up with a creative idea of promoting a new novel, for example. Well, here are three absurd promotional ideas you could use. You could hire a plane to paint a book title in the sky over the crowns at Wembley Football Stadium. You could tattoo the title of the book to your face. Or you could stand naked on a Connell Street in Dublin city centre while reading your book out loud and streaming it all on Facebook live. Now, all of these ideas are absurd, but if you take them down to a more practical level, you could give away 500 copies of your book to bloggers, would-be readers and reviewers. You could mock up a photograph with a tattoo in Photoshop and use this for a Facebook advertising campaign. Or you could record yourself reading your book out loud at locations featured inside your book, like the Giant's Causeway or the Aran Islands in Ireland, or even the Pantanal if you get an opportunity to go there. Remember, it's okay to explore hunches, to probe new avenues of thought and to bring back anything useful or odd that you find. Later on, you can sift through these discoveries and figure out what's usable and what to push aside. Because your absurd practical ideas and experiences like a trip to the Pantanal and your practical creative ideas like a problem that you want to solve for readers are both useful. The trick is to bring them together in a novel and interesting way, just like Albert Einstein. So that's a, an extract of a book that I wrote called The Power of Creativity. And in the book, I elaborate a lot more on how you can use both absurd 
and practical creative ideas. And I also talk about some of my other experiences and of how I've tried to use them to explore the realm of creativity. If you're interested in getting the first part of the book for free, just go to thepowerofcreativitybook.com and it will send you over to an Amazon sales page where you can download the book for free on Kindle. If you've got feedback about this episode or you have questions about creativity or the book, just send me an email at brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at becomearitertoday.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. If you did, please leave a rating on the iTunes store. And if you want to accomplish more with your writing, please visit becomearitertoday.com forward slash join and I'll send you a free email course. Thanks for listening.